Hello, this is Dr. Jason Lee from Toronto, Ontario. So today I have Matt Bell. Uh, he's a colleague of mine from the U.S. We sort of became Twitter friends. And it turns out we've been facing some of the same frustrations uh, in terms of immunoglobulin replacement therapy. And specifically, we're talking about subcutaneous immunoglobulin uh, that is used to usually supplement as supportive care for patients with uh, either cancer or uh, they're born with some kind of immune problem. So welcome, Mel. Uh, Matt, sorry, Mel. I don't know why I called you Mel, but uh, tell me about yourself. You're good, man. Uh, yeah, my name's Matt Bell. I'm an immunologist uh, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, I'm in mostly private practice, uh, but I do uh, some work with the uh, local children's hospital up here, Arkansas Children's Northwest, uh, doing pediatric primary immunodeficiency stuff. But I do both... Uh, adult and pediatric uh, immune deficiency immunology type stuff. And yeah, so it's been a, uh, it's been a challenging year, really, uh, for our primary immune deficient patients who require uh, you know, intravenous or subcutaneous gamma globulin therapy to keep them healthy and infection free and, and fighting these shortages has really, uh, it's, it's been a, a big barrier to patient care, at least uh, here in the uh, southern United States. So how long has this been going on for you guys? Um, because for us, it's been like the last few months. Uh, it sounds like it may actually have been going on longer than that uh, down, down south. Yeah, it's, it's been really the better part of a year, at least nine months, uh, that, we, that we've been dealing with it um, in, in some shape, form, or fashion. And it's, you know, it, it tends to be... I mean, obviously, with a little bit different healthcare system uh, in the U.S., it tends to really be, unfortunately, somewhat insurance specific and especially pharmacy specific in terms of what we can get for certain patients. We may not be able to get for other patients, and uh, you know, it really uh, cuts into our ability to treat patients like we feel would be best for that individual patient. Yeah, definitely, I, I can see and hear the frustration. Um, you know, I, I guess we're a little bit more fortunate in terms of who can access it. So we have uh, a service called Canadian Blood Services. It buys sort of all the IG products and all blood products for all of Canada except for Quebec, which, you know, thinks it's its own country. They have their own little thing. But um, so we, we get that stuff and, uh, you know, patients don't have to really pay out of pocket for much, uh, really just uh, supplies and needles and things like that. So it becomes uh, you know somewhat more affordable. Um, but yeah, like, um, I don't know if you knew this, Matt, but um, IG is actually considered a strategic national resource uh, for the U.S. Yes. And the other sort of little tidbit I learned in doing my work is that the USA provides the vast majority of blood products for the entire world. Like, you are the blood bank for the world. And so it, it's really, you know, um, concerning for me that, you know, you guys produce all this gig. You have all the fractionation uh, plants. You've got all the blood donors, essentially, as well. And there's a shortage in the U.S. And there's a shortage in Canada. And I feel that we can maybe, you know, we might be uh, not able to access it at all in the future uh, because of this shortage. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, intravenous gamma globulin or, or gamma globulin period is a, uh, you know, like, like, uh, I mean, red blood cells, I guess, would be the only other great comparison in that there's no, there's never going to be a way to synthetically produce this stuff. I mean, you can't make recombinant IgG with 
you know, for primary immune deficiency with the goal of, you know, the, when, when you're transfusing IgG, you rely on the fact that it's, you know, it's a natural derived product that uh, is pooled from thousands of donors. So, you, you know, you hope with that pool that you're, um, each donor is going to be exposed to their repertoire of diseases that they've made immunity against. And you rely on that large pool to provide your patients with a broad degree of protection. And so it's going to be one of the products, the few products, the few medicines, if you will, that we give people that it's always going to have a finite supply. And that's going to be, you know, based on how many people are donating, but as well as, you know, how these, uh, these, these, companies that that pool it and and clean it and do everything else are able to uh able to produce it and so that that's what's really kind of frustrating about it is that you know you know that the supply is finite and you know that this may be an issue that we face for for quite some time yeah no for sure and and you know as as you know but uh people may not know hearing this uh this ig stuff you know regardless of if it's given iv or subcutaneous, it's actually quite critical for our patients. Like, uh, you know, people rely on this stuff to not essentially die from infection. Like the mortality benefit is there. Uh, you know, there, obviously there's a serious morbidity benefit if someone, you know, gets a devastating infection or to even prevent infection. So this is actually like a very critical thing. Um, you know, it's, it, it is very unfortunate that uh, sometimes we have to make these tough choices. Um, what do you see as like, you know, maybe a, a solution to all this? Because I, I, you know, I, I have some thoughts, but I, I don't know if they're going to be helpful or even uh, if we can even implement them. Well, I mean, I, I think there's a couple of critical issues going on here. Um, and, the, you know, the first one I see is that, you know, the majority of my practice is outside of a major um, academic medical center. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is that, you know, there may be some degree of stockpiling, if you will, or at least buying power that allows some of these bigger places to more easily obtain this, the, the product, which is good. You know, you obviously you want people, the sickest people are probably going to be in these large academic centers. But I think some of that probably affects the ability of, of, of doctors like me who don't practice in the primary practices outside of a major center. The other thing that I that I see being somewhat of an issue is if you look at the indications for IVIG, they're fairly limited. Um, you know, there's primary immune deficiency, which is the major thing that I'm concerned with. And that's, you know, that's that's where I feel like is the most critical area to have. I mean, you're essentially dealing with people who need this stuff because they don't make this stuff. Um, and you've got you know, these other indications that are, you know, as important, you know, immune thrombocytopenia purpura, uh, Kawasaki's disease, there's a lot of diseases that um, rely on this stuff. And there's some of the neurologic diseases that re rely on this stuff. But then there's also a lot of off-label indications that mm. may show some benefit, but are not necessarily, you know, approved by our FDA for the use of IVIG. And sometimes I feel like that when you have a, a large center that has a supply of this product, that they're more likely to maybe use it for diseases that it appears to show some benefit, but it's not a critical requirement. And they're not necessarily as concerned with 
the reimbursement. So if I have somebody that comes in with, um, you know, a disease that maybe there's some benefit with IVIG, I mean, I, I can't go out there and, and prescribe it because, you know, the insurance companies are going to strictly go by the FDA approved indications for the most part. But if I'm at a big center and I have a, a you know, a, a big supply of this stuff and I can afford to to write some of it off, I'm more apt, I think, to try it in cases where maybe it's not, you know, doesn't have the best uh, efficacy data like we see in primary immune deficiency. So I think the two biggest issues are maybe some stockpiling by larger centers and the the use of gamma globulin where it may not be 100% indicated and that may be taking away from some of our people who really need it. Yeah, so you think there may be some like inappropriate utilization of us uh, of IG, uh, and you know certainly we uh, have st- some of those concerns in Canada too. You know across disciplines, uh, I think you know without na- naming specific specialties, uh, some specialties are a little bit more guilty than others. Right. Uh, but yeah, you know I think uh, at the end of the day, you know doctors are trying to just do the best thing for their patient. Uh, I can think of the example of uh, you know maybe dress or some kind of a drug reaction where you know, like Steven Johnson or TN, uh, where, you know, I've been probably guilty of using uh, IG myself, the IV version, uh, just, you know, when we were kind of not sure the patient's really suffering, you know, you got you got to kind of do something. I've, and yeah. And I have as well. I mean, in, in those scenarios and, you know, the things that you're naming there are obviously life-threatening scenarios. And, and I would never, I would never fault anyone for for you i mean there's there's clear data for the use of gamma globulin in all of those scenarios it may not be an fda approved indication but it probably never will be due to the rarity of those conditions Mm -hmm. um i think where i struggle a little bit with it is um you know for those that are listening they're not maybe as familiar um you know when you give gamma globulin at we we tend to dose it for primary immune deficiency at about half a gram per kilogram 0.4 to 0.5 grams per kilogram per month of the IV formulation um, IVIG can be used in anti for as an anti-inflammatory in certain conditions neurologic conditions rheumatologic conditions etc but the doses are typically much higher you know up to a gram per kilo or higher Um, and you know, so for every person with a condition like that, that may not have a 100% indication for this, you know, each person that you're treating, for instance, with a gram and a half per kilo of, of IVIG, you know, that's three months worth of gamma globulin that, that, that we would be using for primary immune deficiency. So I think some of the hyper hyper uh, physiologic dosing of IVIG um, definitely cuts into our supply. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, one of the things we talked a little bit offline and obviously this is not on, this is not published really, uh, but there are certain like chemotherapies that we're using now too, that kind of, I think, uh, result in side effects of, uh, you know, very profound and lifelong immune deficiencies. Uh, certainly, it's uh, hard to tell sometimes because it's like the chicken and the egg situation. You know, one of the conditions that I treat a lot is, uh, you know, CLL. Um, and in that hematological malignancy, this is a blood cancer that sometimes people get. Um, it's often the case that people will have some kind of problem as a result of the CSL, but also possibly a problem with, you know, 
perhaps just the chemotherapy uh, won't name specific ones, but uh, you know, and I guess that part is actually published. Something like rituximab, I, I guess I can use it by name, um, can result in these sort of profound lifelong changes. Absolutely, and I actually, in fact, dealt with that exact situation today. Um, a, a lady, with yeah, you had, you, had, you had a rough day, right? <laughs> it was a rough day from a, from a gamma globulin standpoint. Um, yeah, dealt with a lady today with CLL that um, one of the the local docs uh, sent over to us, and um, we did you know an immune workup on her, and she'd received two doses of rituximab uh, about nine months ago, and. Yeah, I mean, she's got a low IgG level. She struggles to respond to uh, uh, to her vaccines and, and is getting recurrent infections. And uh, so, I mean, at that point, like you said, it's a chicken or the egg. But at the same point, you've got, you've got to deal with the problem. And you've got a lady that has a, uh, a humoral immune system that is not working appropriately and is suffering because of it. And so, yeah, I mean, you... you that's kind of what you have to do in this situation. And it's obviously not a transient issue. I mean, it's been 12 months and, and she's still dealing with this. So um, this is a lady that we're probably going to have to try to put on gamma globulin. And, and um, you know, would we have had to do that anyway? Who knows? But uh, it's, it's hard not, it's hard to ignore that. Yeah. And, and our listeners probably don't know that the IV and the subcutaneous forms are, uh, you know, although they provide the same thing of immune protection or through passive immunity, uh, one is much safer to do than others, like the sub-Q immunoglobulin. Uh, actually, I think I actually wrote, uh, I don't know if you're part of the Southern Medical Journal, but uh, when sub-Q was really taking off, I actually wrote a little uh, paper just kind of looking at uh, different side effects and what people can expect with the side effects uh, of both uh, sub-Q versus IV. So IV, you know, is it, pretty safe. Uh, it doesn't really cause... Uh, enough side effects to warrant, uh, you know, doing it in the hospital. You can kind of safely do that uh, in the home, uh, as, at least according to our OrbCon uh, guidelines. Those are our Ontario, uh, you know, transfusion guidelines. But, um, you know, I, I heard in, in some cases, some people do get IV forms at home. And, you know, sometimes what happens is one of these rare but devastating side effects, like transfusion-related uh, lung injuries. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we talked a little bit earlier um, literally within the last, I don't know, five hours, um, I got a phone call from one of my patients who is a, uh, she's 48 year old lady with a disease called common variable immunodeficiency where, um, she has a, essentially a, a qualitative defect in her ability to produce antibodies. She has the cells that are capable of producing it, but she just doesn't make it very well. And she, obviously struggles with recurrent pneumonias and recurrent sinusitis, et cetera. And we had started her about two years ago on subcutaneous uh, immune globulin replacement. She was doing it at home, doing great. I mean, we'd significantly reduced her number of infections. And the particular product that we were using was one of the products that uh, was affected by the shortage. And um, so we were informed, obviously, that we're, they were not going to be able to get this product for. And she is a here in the States. We obviously have Medicaid, which is for low income folks. Um, and, you know, it's it's a very taxed system, obviously. And the, the funds are not uh, sometimes as, as easy to come by as with some of the private companies. And so we were uh, forced to switch her over to uh, intravenous uh, gamma globulin, 
which was fine. Um, and they did that in one of our hospital based infusion centers for a few months. Um, and then we were informed that they would no longer reimburse uh, the hospital administration this product and that we would have to do home based uh, uh, immune globulin replacement. Um, which I have not been a, uh, a huge fan of. Um, I, this is the probably third case of transfusion-associated acute lung injury that I've seen with IVIG. I've, I've seen a, a, a stroke that was caused by hyperviscosity with IVIG. And it's just one of those things that I feel like if you're infusing something like that directly into the, into the vein, that it really needs to be done somewhere with some monitoring. But anyway, it was either that or not get product for and uh, we got a call tonight that um, towards the end of her infusion, she developed chest pain and acute uh, respiratory distress, uh, was transported by ambulance to the emergency department, essentially thinking that she had had a, uh, an allergic reaction to the product. They had given her a couple of doses of epinephrine as in treating uh, an allergic process. Uh, she was still in respiratory distress, so now she's currently uh, intubated in the uh, intensive care unit of our local hospital um, with what most likely uh, transfusion-associated acute lung injury. Um, and, you know, that's just not a huge risk that we see with the subcutaneous administration of, of gamma globulin. It's not a common risk with, with intravenous administration, but, um, you know, this is one of those things that you kind of, it's hard not to go back and say if she had still been on sub Q therapy. Yeah, like I told you so almost. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, it's always funny, like these rare side effects are rare, uh, but, you know, something like trolley or uh, transfusion related lung injury, it's, which is like a really catastrophic kind of lung uh, reaction that can happen, which causes you to go into respiratory distress um, or something like aseptic meningitis. Like these are quite. Uh, hard to deal with and um you know it's just uh yeah it's unfortunate that we we also face these uh, sort of decisions and tough calls too here in canada but uh, we try not to do the IV at home but you know i do know of it occurring in some places uh sometimes it's hard like on a practical level to do uh such high dosing um in terms of getting those the one gram per kilogram and the much higher immune modulating doses to actually help patients and because the, the volume just you just can't physically put that much in subcutaneously um wow so uh you know uh, you know misery loves company as they say it's kind of uh disheartening to hear that this is a problem uh, everywhere but uh yeah I, I do kind of worry about the future of this you know our field and what it, this means or the implications are for patients yeah i mean it's you know, the, the the thing about it is, this is a uh, you, you're talking about a small a small group of patients in the in the grand scheme of things. I mean, this is you know we're not dealing with shortages of uh, you know all of the high blood pressure medicines or all of the you know uh, medicines to keep people from having blood clots and things like that. But we are dealing with a a shortage of of a a medication, if you will, that is 100% life prolonging for people. I mean, this is something that prior to the 1950s, you know, if you had a disease like, uh, for instance, X-linked agammaglobulinemia, which is a, you know, complete absence of uh, the, the B cell, which is one of the, which is the antibody producing cell. I mean, these, these people died in, in early childhood. And now in, in 2019, we 
have the ability to let these people live a completely normal, healthy, long life unless you take away the, the, their, their lifeblood, if you will, which is, which is gamma globulin. And, um, we literally lifeblood. Yeah. I, literally. <laughs> yeah. If it's, we figure out a better way to, to, uh, you know, whether it's regulate the usage of it or, or regulate the, you know, the, the supply of it. Um, this is going to be something that, that is a, could be a problem for the, for the foreseeable future. For sure. It's a very unfortunate problem. Uh, maybe the next time we speak, there'll be some solutions. Uh, thank you very much, Matt. Uh, it's a pleasure, you know, finally getting to chance to speak to you, uh, you know, outside of Twitter. And I look forward to seeing you in Houston. Absolutely. Well, thanks for letting a, uh, a good old cowboy hat wearing boy from Arkansas get on here and talk to you. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> See you, man.